0: For which patients do you use pulmonary rehabilitation? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is pulmonologist Dr. Stephen Brown. Dr. Brown is on faculty of the University of Wisconsin, and you may also find him at the Lung Center of Milwaukee. Welcome. Thank you. Now, uh, Steve, tell us what patients are appropriate for pulmonary rehab.
1: I think one of the important things is that patients should probably be considered for pulmonary rehabilitation earlier than later. Patients should not be at a point where they are wheelchair-bound on oxygen before we can get them up into an exercise program. A pulmonary rehabilitation program, which is usually found in many hospitals throughout the country, and there are also freestanding pulmonary rehabilitation programs in many communities, is usually a multidisciplinary approach. and It includes a respiratory therapist who works with a patient on breathing, May also include a physical therapist who may specifically address some of the patient's problems with regard to mobility. I've had patients who have, for example, bad knees, where we're still able to work with arm exercisers and things like that. It often includes a dietitian, includes a social worker, includes psychologists or psychiatric support. But it's a multidisciplinary approach. When patients are starting to notice that their lung disease is affecting their activities of daily living, you should be considering whether that patient might benefit from pulmonary rehabilitation.
0: So is it possible for primary care physicians to refer straight to pulmonary rehab, or do the patients need to be seen by a pulmonologist?
1: In many circumstances, the primary care physician can directly refer the patient to a pulmonary rehabilitation program. I'm the uh, medical director of a pulmonary rehabilitation program in uh, southeast Wisconsin a substantial number of our patients will actually be referred directly by the primary care doctors. and I invite that. It's very helpful. And when these patients are referred to pulmonary rehabilitation, by far the vast majority of them are appropriate for pulmonary rehab. You know, it's an important thing for uh, primary care doctors to do is to consider whether a patient might benefit from rehabilitation.
0: Can you give us a picture of what this patient might look like?
1: I'd say a, a typical patient uh, that I've seen in pulmonary rehab uh, might be, for example, a A 70-year-old woman uh, who's been smoking about a pack a day for the past 40 years, and she may even have quit smoking about five years ago, but she notes that she's really uh, huffing and puffing around the house, and she's not able to do things that she'd like to do. Uh, And there are many activities that really become major projects for people with COPD. Carrying groceries in from the car. One particular woman who I saw recently uh, had to climb about 15 stairs to carry a laundry basket up from the basement, and it was a chore for her. Matter of fact, when I'm asking these patients about some of their activities, one of the questions I'll ask is, how many stairs do you have to climb from the basement to the, you know, First Landing, and those patients invariably tell me the exact number of stairs instantly they say it 's twelve stairs uh-huh. and the reason they tell me exactly the number of stairs is because they 're counting them every step of the way thank god i 've got healthy lungs i 've got stairs in my house. I have no idea how many stairs it is to the basement because I never bother to count you know living there twenty years. I have no idea, uh, but for some with c o p d they are counting how many steps they have to go, so they will report difficulty with activities like that they 'll say you know i 'm really winded." when I want to go into the shopping mall. But there's very specific task-related difficulties that they'll have. And some of them are seeking help with smoking cessation as well, and they've developed some deconditioning. So the goal for pulmonary rehabilitation is to help these patients with uh, their deconditioning and with a problem of hyperinflation. The lungs in COPD, and specifically emphysema, have become floppy. And when talking to patients about what emphysema is like, I so, say, you know, if you took a hot water bottle and you blew it up really, really huge, and you suddenly let the air out of a hot water bottle, and you look at it a second later, it's going to look like a hot water bottle again, and all the air is going to be gone from it. And, you know, that's how lungs normally should behave. Now, if on the other hand, I took a beach ball and I inflated it completely, and I cut the valve off of a beach ball so that the air could leave the beach ball quickly. Well, if you looked at a beach ball a second later, it's not going to fully deflate. And as a matter of fact, if I want to get all the air out of a beach ball, even if I cut the valve off of it, I'd have to squeeze the beach ball to get all the air out of it. And that's how the airways of someone with emphysema behave. And they walk around with lungs which they can't totally empty their air. And if you're breathing rapidly, if you're exercising and you're not able to exhale the last breath completely, that air is going to stack up. And eventually you're going to get to a point of such hyperinflation of the lungs, a condition which we refer to as dynamic hyperinflation. We just can't do it anymore because your diaphragm is down you know, in your pelvis mm-hmm. and then you have to stop what you're doing. So pulmonary rehabilitation helps these people to pace themselves. It helps them to do activities such as pursed lip breathing and diaphragmatic breathing and abdominal control of their breathing so that they can do more for themselves and they don't get winded. They don't get the sense of breathlessness that occurs.
0: So how long are people typically in a pulmonary rehab program?
1: Typical pulmonary rehab program, people go about three times a week anywhere from two to three times a week, anywhere from about six to 12 weeks. In my programs, generally people are going about three times a week for about an hour to an hour and a half session, and we'll do that for about eight weeks or so. And some patients elect to stay in a refresher type of a program or a maintenance type of program, maybe once or twice a week. Some uh, patients will go on to just do the same exercises at home with either home equipment or just walking activities. And the studies which have, been looked at, which have looked at pulmonary rehabilitation have demonstrated that participation in a pulmonary rehabilitation program for as little as two or three times a week for a six-week program will give benefits to those patients in terms of improved uh, breathlessness and quality of life scores and dyspnea scores uh, where those patients will show improvement for up to two years after participation in a program.
0: How hard is it to get it paid for?
1: Uh, usually, uh, most insurance companies will pay for pulmonary rehabilitation. Medicare will usually cover it. You have to demonstrate uh, certain criteria in terms of pulmonary function, but typically, if we start seeing pulmonary function that's less than about 60% of predicted values, the insurance companies will pay for it. It's not much of a letter that you have to write if you have to do any sort of pre pre authorization letter. You just advise the insurance company that uh, this patient has. Uh, documented lung disease by pulmonary function testing and they explain what the limitations are and uh, it usually goes through.
0: So Dr. Brown, what what piece does perhaps um, nutritional counseling play in pulmonary rehab?
1: Nutrition is extremely important in pulmonary rehabilitation. My patients who do have chronic lung disease uh, are usually either too heavy or too thin people who are the classic pink puffer type of patient tend to get into a state where they are hypermetabolic their work of breathing is so hard and these patients are trying so hard that uh, they don't take in enough calories and they become overly thin and uh, when you have when you're you're too thin you just don't have the energy you don't have the muscle mass and you don't do as well so for those patients identifying their nutritional needs and giving them supplementation uh, particularly protein supplementation is very important. Uh, for some patients who are chronic CO2 retainers, uh, if you give them too much carbohydrate, you actually can worsen their chronic CO2 retention. So again, properly advising them with regard to proper carbohydrate intake is helpful. And for patients who are overweight, uh, getting them to lose weight is probably more important than most of the bronchodilators that you can throw at a patient. So imagine you know, the, the only muscle that does our breathing is is the diaphragm. You know, the intercostal muscles may play a little bit of a role, but mostly it's in the diaphragm. So that's when you have a a, a paralysis at, uh, you know, C3 or whatever, and the diaphragm is not innervated. You know, people have to be on chronic ventilators. I explain that to my patients. And if you imagine the diaphragm is your only muscle that's doing your breathing, look north of the diaphragm and you have a lung which is hyperinflated because it's floppy. And that hyperinflated lung is a vector. It's a force that's pushing down on the diaphragm, impeding your breathing. Now, if you're looking south of the diaphragm and you have a big belly that's pushing up on the diaphragm, that's a vector that's pushing upwards. If you have a vector that's pushing down and a vector that's pushing up, the diaphragm is fixed in a plane and doesn't move. Now, we can reduce the hyperinflation with bronchodilators. We can reduce the hyperinflation with pulmonary rehab, teaching people to properly exhale their previous breath and pace themselves. But you can also improve the mobility of the diaphragm if you can get the belly down. So for many of my patients, if they can lose weight, I saw someone recently who weighed about 240 pounds and had a really big belly. And uh, getting them into a uh, regular weight loss program, we got them to drop about 40 pounds. So... He was still overweight at 200, but that 40-pound weight loss and reduction in the waist made a huge difference, and he felt so much better and was able to do so much more in terms of his activities, more than I could do with any of the medicines that was out there.
0: Now, one of the other things that we haven't talked about that I would think would be important in treating these patients is the importance of vaccinations.
1: Yes, that's very important. Patients uh, who have uh, COPD, as well as other chronic lung diseases, should get an annual immunization for influenza. So every October or so, we give them their annual flu shot. Pneumovax is the other immunization that we give. That's the um, for pneumococcal vaccine. The pneumovax is a vaccination against proteins which surround the capsule of the pneumococcus. It's not a live uh, bacteria. It's not a live virus. Patients are sometimes worried about that. And we explained to them that we're immunizing them against the capsule around the pneumococcus. Strep pneumonia is the organism which is most likely to kill people of the bacteria. Pneumovax does not prevent pneumonia. The pneumonia shot does not prevent pneumonia. It does not prevent pneumonia due to organisms other than strep. It doesn't even prevent strep pneumonia, but if you get strep pneumonia, Pneumovax uh, greatly reduces the likelihood that you will die from it, so it prevents the serious complications. And uh, typically in my practice, I will give Pneumovax um, about every six years or so under the age of 80, and and since Pneumovax tends to lose its uh, efficacy, uh, in older patients, I'll give it about every five years. And I'll even use that to kind of encourage my patients a little bit. If they're 70 years old, I'll tell them, okay, I need to give you a pneumonia shot every five or six years for the next 30 years. <laughs> they like that.
0: I bet they do. Now, in terms of the long-term management of these people, do prophylactic antibiotics have any place?
1: Prophylactic antibiotics probably have very limited role in COPD. Uh, there's a lung condition called bronchiectasis uh, where prophylactic antibiotics might have some role, but in COPD, generally not. If you give prophylactic antibiotics or you give too many antibiotics in COPD, you can actually cause bacterial resistance to occur. Now, with that said, in healthy adults with acute bronchitis, that's often viral and antibiotics are not needed. However, in COPD, When they get bronchitis, when they get acute exacerbation of chronic bronchitis, the vast majority of those patients will actually have a bacterial etiology, and it's incumbent upon us to treat them with antibiotics. So when they do get sick, they should be treated empirically. The organisms that we worry about in acute exacerbation of chronic bronchitis include strep pneumonia, and Haemophilus influenza, which is about 40%, and Morexella catarrhalis, in addition to some other organisms. Uh, so if a patient presents to you and they have a couple of symptoms, if they just say, I've got fever, no big deal. But if they say, I've got fever and I now have purulent sputum, or I've got purulent sputum and I'm short of breath, they have a couple of symptoms, a change in the color of the sputum or purulence of the sputum, go ahead and give antibiotics early in those circumstances.
0: I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Brown. We have been discussing the long-term treatment of COPD. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.